The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. You know, there are some things that are just not possible for those of us who live after uh, the resurrection of Christ. And one of them is the experience of total dismay and despair that settled in on those disciples after the crucifixion. We know that Jesus was raised from the grave. Consequently, though we go through very difficult times and perhaps disillusionment at times, the knowledge that he has risen from the grave keeps us from being utterly destroyed in our hearts. But it was not that way for these first disciples. They had been told about Christ's resurrection They had heard about it, but they didn't fully understand it. They had put everything they had into the life of Jesus Christ. And now, he's dead. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the death of faith. It was the death of life as they knew it. For three years, they had... uh, Uh, been a body of men and women who had followed Jesus around in his itinerant ministry. They had seen tremendous miracles done. They had heard his teaching. They had heard all these wonderful things, and they had come to realize that he was the Messiah. But then came the crucifixion. And when Jesus died, their faith died also. And they began to demonstrate the death of their faith as they scattered back to where they came from. The women went back to their homes. Cleopas and Mary went back to their villages. Many others went back to their villages. In the early days, they had given testimonies. They had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. We believe and know that you are the holy one of God, John 6, 69. But in the period between the crucifixion and the resurrection, it had become past tense. They had believed once, but that was over. Faith had died. Of all those who were wrapped up in these last days before the crucifixion, there's no better illustration of this than Thomas, the doubting disciple. We are not told much about him, only that he was inclined to be very sober about things. On one occasion when Jesus had indicated that he intended to return to Jerusalem because of the death of Lazarus, Thomas made this statement in John 11, 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now at first glance, you might think, wow, What a dedicated disciple. If the Lord's going to die, he's going to die with him. But, you know, I think it was more like, you guys want to die? Then go with him. You really think we should be going back with him? Lord, what are you doing? Y'all want to die? Well, we'll just go with him. He was very cold and callous in some of these things. Later in the upper room, when Jesus had declared, you know the way to the place I'm going in John 14, 4, Thomas countered right away in verse 5. He said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas was not without faith. I wouldn't want to give you that impression. 
I'm sure he was probably like the other disciples. But it was at least a rather sober faith that dealt squarely with the evidence. And in light of the character that we see in Thomas, we're not surprised to learn that after some of the disciples had seen Jesus after the resurrection, and they went and they told Thomas, Thomas's negative response in John 20, 25, he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Talk about a cold heart. When you read that, you can almost hear the thoughts behind it, can't you? Didn't I tell you this would happen? Didn't I tell you if he went back there, this was going to happen? And here we are. We call him a doubter, doubting Thomas. And that's what we teach children, isn't it, in their children's stories about doubting Thomas. But it might be better to call him outright unbelieving Thomas. That is, he didn't understand or believe that Christ would come from the grave. Alexander McLaren once wrote, quote, flat, frank, dogged disbelief and not hesitation or doubt was his attitude. The very form in which he puts his requirement shows how he was hugging his unbelief. Unless I see the hands, the see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. He was not convinced. And now the reality that this man knew was coming back to haunt him. He knew better. He was crushed. He was disillusioned. He was utterly disappointed. And he would not be fooled again. And then there's the death of hope. It was not only faith that had died in these disciples, but hope had died too. They had possessed such great hopes and yet they had seen it all go away with the crucifixion. The saddest expression of these, uh, the death of hope is the statement made by the Emmaus disciples recorded in Luke 24. They had hoped that he was the one to establish the kingdom, that he was, he was the true one that the disciples could follow. But now the inconceivable had happened. He had died. And their hope had died with them. How often does our hope die when things don't work out the way we expect? How often do we feel our hope drained out when what we were looking for is not what we see? Their minds were so clouded by the great disappointment that they didn't even recognize the Lord when he confronted them on the road after his resurrection. He asked them what they'd been talking about. Look at the account here in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. And he said to them, <clears throat> Jesus said this, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, 
concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now been the third day since these things have happened. A fading hope. Now, I don't know what they expected. Maybe they thought that when they took Jesus' lifeless body off the cross that he would suddenly spring to life and set up his kingdom and put their enemies down. Or maybe the second day he would come back to life, but it's been three days. Their hope is gone, and they're heading back home. It's interesting that verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, because that's precisely what he was doing. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he was redeeming Israel and all who placed their faith and trust in Christ. But that's not what they were thinking. They were thinking of that national temporal messianic redemption upon which their hopes had been set throughout all the three years of his ministry. But since Jesus had died, they knew that wasn't coming. You know, it seems that all men are wrapped up with redemption here on earth. We want our plans redeemed. We want our ideas redeemed. We want the things we hope for, the things that we plan, the things we want redeemed. But God's plan is an eternal redemption, not a singletary moment. I remember years ago, just two years into my business career, when the company I was with, we had worked so hard to build the sales and build a brand in an, in an industry. And and we had done that very successfully. The brand was becoming very well known, and, and we were making great inroads. But then the owners called a meeting, and they said, you know, our success is outpacing our ability to fund it. And so we've decided to sell the company. And we want to let you know, because more than likely, the company that will buy us will have their own people in place, and you probably need to be looking for a job. I remember after that meeting, we walked out, many of us, to the grass and the lawn out in front of the building. We just kind of sat there, dumbfounded. We had worked so hard to succeed, and we had succeeded. And now it was going to cost us our job. I remember one, after a period of time, one saying, what are you going to do? I don't know, what are you going to do? I mean, this is all brand new. We were focused in our goals and our plan, and we were achieving it, and it was not going to turn out well. God was in that plan. And I don't have time to tell you, but God wrote this plan. You see, the key here is that love did not die. Faith was gone. Hope was shattered, but in spite of all the cruel disillusionment and despair, they still loved Jesus. One of the greatest examples of this is Mary. 
Now, we don't know a great deal about Mary, this Mary of Magdalene. But we must be careful not to distinguish what we know from those fraudulent details that have been added down through the accounts in church tradition. The Bible tells us that Mary had been the object of Christ's special grace and that he had sent seven demons out of her in Luke chapter 8. For no sound reason at all, some church traditions identify her with the unnamed sinner of Luke 7 who anointed the feet of Jesus in the house of a wealthy Pharisee probably because Mary of Bethany had done the same thing in the house of Lazarus later on, and maybe they confused the two. But from that, she was assumed to have been a prostitute because Christ saved her. And by the 17th century, the word Magdalene was synonymous with redeemed prostitute. We do not know if this was her case or not. But Christ had saved her from something terrible, and she loved him. To her core. Jesus said that the one who has been forgiven much loves much, Luke 7 47. And this is precisely true of Mary. Early in his ministry, we learned that she ministered to him out of her substance. And we find that the at the end she was still trying to minister to him. We'll never fully understand the account of Christ's appearance to Mary at the tomb unless we recognize that it was love, and only love, that brought her there. She had possessed faith once, as did the others. She had hoped. But faith and hope were gone now. Only love caused her to seek the body and stay close to the tomb. It's a remarkable story. To begin with, Mary was one of the group of women who had been in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, and she witnessed everything. <clears throat> Matthew 27, beginning of verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. No doubt, she witnessed the crowd shouting, Away with him. Crucify him. And then the long walk to the place of crucifixion. The nails. The thirst. The darkness. And then Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mary loved him, and she would love him to the end. And even then, after all that had taken place, she still wants to serve him. For although he was gone, the only thing left to do was to deal with the body that was left. And it was on the third day that Mary and the other women made their way to the tomb to anoint the body. Now, I can imagine these women probably haven't slept a wink. You can imagine every time they close their eyes, all they can see is the blood-stained body and hear the cries of pain. I'm sure there was little sleep at all. And on the third day, in the dimness of the dawn, making their way, it suddenly occurs to them, what about the stone? Mark 16, 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Wow, there's a good idea. 
how are we going to get, get into the body? And then I'm sure they knew about the soldiers that had been dispatched to guard the tomb to keep anybody away from it. And what of the stench of death? You know, it was a great concern when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. You recall that they said, Lord, he's been in the ground three days. He's got to stink. Paraphrasing. Who would be willing to do such a thing apart from love? All they were concerned about was Jesus. They loved him. And that was all they knew to do to continue to serve him. Upon reaching the tomb, as you know the story, they noticed in the early dawn that the stone had already been rolled away. Of course, this served their purpose, but would it happen? So they stopped and asked themselves what, should, what they should do. And they realized right away that the disciples need to be alerted. And so whether Mary was dispatched or volunteered, she ran back to tell the disciples. While she was gone, the other women got closer and they looked into the tomb and they saw the angel. Matthew 28, verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Shortly thereafter, Peter and John, having heard Mary's message, came running to the tomb. And what of Mary? They left her there, but she makes her way back to the tomb again. She wanted to find out as much as anyone. I wonder if you can identify with Mary this morning. She had been there. She had witnessed the person that she loved so deeply be brutally killed. She had come to anoint the body to serve him. And now that was taken from her. And when she finally gets back, the disciples are gone. The women are gone. She's totally alone. It was beyond her emotional capacity. And she burst out weeping. And with her tear-blurred eyes, she looked into the sepulcher. And she saw the angels. John 20, verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? <clears throat> I find it fascinating that they called her woman. We'll see in a moment. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Do you see the significance in that reply? Mary was not startled by the angels. She may not even recognize them as angels. She was looking for the Lord. There was still no faith. There was still no hope. But she loved him. And she wanted to know where he was. Her faith was gone. Her hope was shattered. But all she wanted to do was to anoint the body of her Savior. And now, since the body was gone, she had no more interest either in the tomb or the angels. And we read, therefore, that at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. John 20, verse 14. Notice, 
Having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but notice this. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. I wonder sometimes if our faith and hope so destroyed that we fail to see Jesus right in front of us. We see the trial. We see the difficulty. We see the pain. Surely God is not in that stuff, is he? But he was right there in front of her. Why did she not recognize him? John 20, verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The exact same thing the angel said. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You see, he addressed her as a stranger. And she responds to him as if he's a stranger. Her mind is wrapped up in death, and she doesn't even see life standing right in front of her because she's so crushed. Now, I'm sure all of us can identify things in our life where we were so downcast we didn't see what God was doing, or if he was even there. Even after Jesus speaks, she doesn't recognize him. You know, I wonder, why are you here this morning? Who are you seeking? Have you not recognized his voice? Have you not seen him in the events of your life? Some people only come to church at certain times, and I wonder, are they thinking, maybe this is the time something will connect? Maybe this is the very moment that I'll finally get it? But are we looking for something different? Are we looking for a Savior in our own making? and not the true Savior. You see, Mary was still thinking in terms of a dead body. She had been weeping for three days, and her heart was empty, even though she still managed to get some tears out. She had experienced unutterable anguish. And at that point, Mary must have turned her back on Christ because later when he talks to her, it says that she turned back to him. You see, the point is, she was not interested in a gardener. She wanted her Lord. And it's at that point that Jesus says, Mary. Instantly, her eyes are open. And she cries out, Rabboni, Master. She came looking for death and finally saw life. The Bible tells us that the sheep 
know the voice of their shepherd. And when the shepherd called her by her name, she instantly knew it was him. Her faith came leaping back from the grave. Her hope was back, and all because of love. A love that would not die. A love that could not die. You see, the greatest of these is love. You may be here this morning, and you've never known any of these three responses to Jesus Christ. Neither faith, neither hope, nor love. You may say that you cannot believe and, and you have no grounds for hope. That you do not see how you could love him. Your eyes are clouded. You've never met him. You've never seen him. How can I love someone I've never seen? And besides, look at my life. You're trying to tell me there's a God? How can I possibly love? Well, my answer is that the way you come to love him is to know that he loves you. And before the foundation of the world, he loved you. People will say, look, it, I get this. You know, maybe if I was a good person and, you know, I was doing okay and, you know, God would love me. But, man, you don't know my life. Well, listen, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you've done, who you are. It doesn't matter. Because Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were living in sin, like stinking, smelly sheep, the shepherd knew you. And in spite of you, he loved you because he chose to love you. And it's with a holy God love that penetrates our sin. Can you focus on his death and love him for that? Once you grasp the truth, the matter will not stop there. Because like so many... He will call you by your name and you will hear him. And when he does, you will recognize him and you too will cry out, Master! Because his love will penetrate all the humanness that you think you have in the way. In that moment, faith will be born in you and hope will triumph and you'll be his forever. You know, you might be here this morning and you are a Christian. You, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you, and you love him. But maybe tragedy has come into your life. Maybe things have happened that have really disappointed and disillusioned you. Maybe you're struggling with loss or struggling with a financial situation. You put whatever you want in there and you're just flat disillusioned. And right now, you're in the same place these disciples were between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Your faith has been tried. Your hope has been shattered. And you're doubting life itself. But understand that when you draw near to him, 
and you realize that nothing comes into your life apart from the permissible of God. And that he works in the good and the bad. You begin to understand that there's far more to this than just your own personal feelings. This week I was, I was reading about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's been called the Prince of Preachers. Many feel he's probably the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. But maybe a better name for him would have been the Sultan of Suffering. You see, he struggled from acute gout, rheumatism, Bright's disease, which is an inflammation of the kidneys. He would experience such horrific pain that he would go into fits of great depression. And he would have to go away for three and four weeks at a time to try to gather himself and get through it so he could get back to studying and preaching. Yet, God was making a preacher through pain. And in the end, Spurgeon did not despise suffering. He made a statement. I don't know why I'd never heard it before. Boy, it resonated with me, and I know it will with you too. He was asked about it, the suffering. And his response was simply this. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of life. Can we do that this morning? Can you look at life and realize nothing apart from his will comes into your life? There is absolutely nothing that he is not working in and through you. God has an amazing plan for you and I. And the sooner we learn to trust him and let his spirit take over, the sooner we begin to understand that peace that passes all understanding. I mean, you, you can have the head knowledge. But until this goes from here to here, you don't fully grasp it. And sometimes it's through pain that takes you there. But like all the great men and women that have gone before in the faith, they will stop at nothing to let God have all of them. This is why Paul had said, so I learned to be content whatever state I'm in. I've learned how to be happy with much and little and struggles and pain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These aren't just words. They're reality. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I want you to know that that life is being offered to you today. It's more than just a religion. It's a relationship. Religion is man-made. Relationship is God-made. And when you and I learn that, we begin to echo 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. And you know what? is really comforting about Easter. He arose from the grave 
for sure. And the reality for Mary was not just that he was alive, but then everything he taught was true. Everything that he had preached and taught suddenly came rushing into reality because he rose from the grave, as he said. Christianity is the only religion in history whose Savior is not in a grave. And that gives you and I the confidence of knowing that everything he teaches is true. That the peace you can have is true. That the faith you can have is true. That you will be with him for eternity is true. That's what Easter is about. But there's one more thing I don't want to forget. Because of Easter, he's coming back. He's coming back for you and I. We may go sooner than others through death. But if we're still here and those trumpets sound, he's calling us to be with him. All the struggles, the fears, the anxiety, the pain, everything you're going through will be gone like that. And you see, this is what gives you and I the strength to get through because our pain is only temporal. Our joy is eternal. Our suffering is today, but glory comes in the morning. And he is coming again. I want to close this morning with a, with, a, with a video of a tremendous song. And as this song is playing, I want you just to allow the words to penetrate your heart. Would you do that this morning?
Father, we know there's a day coming when you will be king. You're our king now, but there's a day coming when we will be with you to rule and reign with you. Lord, this Easter is something we celebrate every year. But yet as we grow older, we realize we grow closer and closer to the reality of your promises. Those of us who know you as Savior will be with you forever. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here this morning who their relationship just doesn't exist yet, I pray that your spirit would move in their hearts, draw them to you that they might hear their name called and they can cry out, Master. Speak to our hearts this morning. May this be an Easter like none other, Lord, that Christians would be more dedicated to walk with you and that others would be drawn to you to leave the cares of this world behind and trust you to work in and through them. And if there's anyone here this morning who needs to know more, I pray that you come to me afterwards and or seek out someone who can share the good news of salvation, how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. Go with us this day. Be glorified today today 